With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Danielle Leal. Hey everyone, Danielle Leal here, and thanks for getting your agriculture news with me today. Storms bring hope for agriculture, but inflict damage on crops. Historic storms over the past two weeks have piled up deep snow in the Sierra Nevada. We'll find out how much snow later in our show today. And they've provided some relief for depleted reservoirs and brightened the water supply prospects for agriculture. However, they also inflicted a harsh toll with showers, mudslides, and fierce winds combining to ruin thousands of acres of crops with filthy water while wrecking havoc on orchards. Crops from strawberries to broccoli suffered damage in Salinas Valley. Wheat and alfalfa took a beating elsewhere, and farmers fretted as uncaptured stormwater poured into the ocean. That was today's California Farm Bureau Food and Farm News Report, and now let's get into our show headlines. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey looks at the latest totals regarding mountain snowpack and California's main source of irrigation water. The water equivalency of the Sierra Nevada snowpack has climbed to at least 32 inches. That puts us above what you would typically expect for an entire western winter wet season. So we are halfway through. We've accumulated more than you would expect to receive by the time we get to April 1st. That 32-inch total is 120% of average of the April 1st typical peak date and And it's about two and a half times normal what you would expect to see accumulated in the Sierra Nevada by mid-January. The way to look at that from a hydrological perspective is that it's nothing but good news for water supply for northern and central California, where most of the big reservoirs are. This is going to help fill them up as that snow eventually melts later in the spring and into early summer. It bodes very well for replenishing reservoirs that had dropped by the end of November to about two-thirds of average for that time of year. Since then, we have seen significant improvement, and it's quite possible that many of the reservoirs, except the biggest ones, will be brimming with water by the time we get to late spring and early summer. Rippy goes on to compare this snowpack season with previous record-setting season accumulations. In case you're wondering if we're anywhere near records for snow accumulation, the answer is perhaps surprisingly no. And just to put that in perspective with a couple of our recent wet years, back in 2016-17 and then in 2018-19, those two years, we saw snow water equivalencies ending up above 45 inches those two years. So not so long ago, but certainly on the other side of that three-year drought that we're just trying to break out of. So we've got about 32 inches accumulated currently in the Sierra Nevada snowpack. Now, if we do happen to get back into another stormy pattern in, say, February or March, we could approach or top those numbers from 2016-17 and 18-19. But at this point, we are not quite to the level of those season-ending accumulations that we saw in March of 2017 and March of 2019. But there's a lot of water year left to go, about half of the accumulation season still ahead of us. And now here's Brian German with back-to-back agriculture news. Growers have a threshold consideration for dealing with grapevine red blotch virus. Professor of plant pathology at Cornell University, Mark Fuchs, said disease levels can be an approximate gauge for how to address the issue. If the disease incidence is higher than 30 percent, the recommendation is to remove the entire block and replant. If the disease incidence is less than 30%, eliminating disease vines and replacing them with clean vines is the recommendation. Now, the 30% threshold is just a guideline. It's not written in stone because obviously there are variations in the tolerance of the disease, but at least this 30% is there as a theoretical reference 
for growers to make up their mind as to what is the best approach to mitigate the effect of red blotch. The California Air Resources Board's 2030 scoping plan raises some serious questions about its feasibility. President and CEO of Western Ag Processors Roger Rysom said the plan essentially boils down to eliminating any type of fossil fuel combustion. So when you review the scoping plan, it's basically centered on eliminating you know, lawnmowers, tractors, forklifts, trucks, you name it. If it has combustion, it's on the target list to be eliminated all the way down to the house. So the elimination of the natural gas stove, the natural gas dryer, natural gas water heater, or propane, that everything would be required to be electric. So this is going to be a very far-reaching scoping plan. It's the first of its kind, not only in the nation, but the world. And it's going to be costly. And I'm not even sure that we can get there, let alone if it was really the desire of everybody to do that. You know, what's the cost? Do we have the infrastructure? I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal, tossing it right on over to Sabrina Halverson with today's National Spotlight. In today's National Spotlight, inflation is slowing according to the latest report, though prices in many sectors remain higher than they were last year. Food prices dropped 1.2% with fruits, vegetables, and chicken seeing the biggest decreases. One exception was egg prices. Egg prices jumped 25% from November to December, largely due to the avian flu. I talked with Cecilia Rouse, chair of the White House Council of Economic Advisors, who told me one aspect is of particular interest to producers. So we have two ways that we can think about inflation in December at at the moment. So the first, which we learned a week or so ago, is the prices that consumers are paying when they go to the store, the consumer price index. And with the consumer price index, what we saw is that that inflation was starting to ease. Uh, We saw that largely driven by gasoline prices, that the headline CPI actually declined in in December by just a little bit. And so that was the first sign that we were seeing some easing in inflation. What we learned today is that the prices that producers pay for their inputs, uh, the producer price index, also saw some easing. And we saw that the price that they pay for their inputs fell to the lowest level since March of 2021. And at the same time, what we learned is that the spending by consumers for retail and food services in December, which is a big component of consumption, and we know that consumption is a big part of our economic growth GDP, uh, that that did fall in nominal terms. But if we adjust for inflation and prices, that it actually held steady. So what we have seen over the last month in December is that we're seeing that inflation is beginning to ease, and yet the retail consumer spending remains resilient. And we've learned that if we look at the labor market, that our labor market remains resilient as well as the economy continues to add jobs uh, at a bit over 200,000 jobs per month. And that unemployment, importantly, unemployment is at a 50-year low. So to date, what we are seeing is the kind of easing in the economy 
that may allow the Federal Reserve to achieve what we're calling a soft landing, which is that they bring down inflation without causing a significant increase in unemployment. And you hit on several things that are important to our listeners, but probably one of the top, producer inputs, that has been a struggle for people around the nation. It's getting better. Absolutely. In fact, if we look at the prices for final demand food, for example, that fell by 1.2% in December. That's the first drop in prices since August of 2022 and the largest decrease in two years. So, you know, we are seeing these decreases were widespread. They were, I should say, they were broad-based, and they provide some suggestion that uh, that we are going to see continued moderation when we look at different price indices. The Federal Reserve will look at a different price index that we'll learn about later this month, and we expect that to continue to show some easing as well. And then can we briefly touch on egg prices, because it's something that everybody's talking about, and it, while it's not necessarily an inflation issue, from what I'm hearing from people that I talk to, they don't quite understand that. They, they're blaming inflation when they, really there's this problem with the avian flu. Can you expand on that at all? Well, I would say what you just said. So if we look at food prices specifically, what we learned is that they increased by about 0.3% last month. Uh, that's the slowest month, monthly growth since March of 2021. Grocery prices also had their slowest, slowest growth since March of 2021. That's all while we saw that spike in egg prices of about 11%. I really have nothing more. We attribute that largely to the avian flu, which uh, began last winter, uh, was largely under control, but there's been a resurgence um, this fall, and we hope that we'll get that under control uh, quickly as well. Uh, so that will cause some relief, that will bring some relief to egg prices as well. Inflation across the country was at its highest point in 40 years last summer. That's today's National Spotlight. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. Thanks, Sabrina. And now for today's Livestock Report, here's Randall Wiseman. Well, in today's Livestock News, the Environmental Protection Agency and Army Corps of Engineers did publish the revised Waters of the U.S. or WOTUS rule in the Federal Register this week. The publication means the revised rule will go into effect on March 20, 2023. EPA and the Army Corps announced the rule at the end of last year, which will replace the Navigable Waters Protection Rule. And after that announcement, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association filed a lawsuit against the Environmental Protection Agency challenging the Biden administration's final WOTUS rule. According to NCBA Chief Counsel Mary Thomas Hart, the Biden administration's WOTUS definition is an attack on farmers and ranchers, and NCBA will be fighting back in court. The rule removes long-standing bipartisan exclusions for small and isolated water features on farms and ranches and adds to the regulatory burden that cattle producers are facing under the administration. She noted, we look forward to challenging this rule in court and ensuring that cattle producers are treated fairly under the law. Last year, over 1,700 individual cattle producers sent messages to the EPA opposing the administration's overly broad definition of WOTUS. Producers once again shared their views with the EPA at an agency roundtable last June, and even the EPA's own Farm, Ranch, and Rural Communities Advisory Committee urged the EPA to consider a more limited rule. But unfortunately, EPA failed to incorporate the cattle industry's recommendations, and NCBA will be suing to stop this rule from harming cattle producers. Now, NCBA notes they previously did file technical comments on the rule, highlighting the importance of maintaining agricultural exclusions for small, isolated, and temporary water features. They note that regulating these features at the federal level under the Clean Water Act disrupts normal ag operations and interferes with cattle producers' abilities to make improvements on their land. 
Hart said NCBA is also concerned that the EPA charges head first onto a controversial rulemaking while this very issue is currently before the Supreme Court, and they look forward to the decision on the Sackett versus EPA. The Supreme Court heard oral arguments in that case back in October of last year and is expected to release a decision sometime early yet this year. If you'd like more information on any of this, go to the National Cattlemen's Beef Association website, ncba.org. And USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service proposes to amend animal disease traceability regulations and require electronic identification for interstate movement of certain cattle and bison. APHIS is also proposing to revise and clarify record requirements. The changes would strengthen the nation's ability to quickly respond to significant animal disease outbreaks, at least that's according to USDA. The proposed rule would require official ear tags to be visually and electronically readable for official use for interstate movement for certain cattle and bison. A comment period on the proposed rule is open through March 22nd. I'm Randall Wiseman for Agnet West. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Danielle Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Today's show is sponsored by the makers of All Grow Compost, a natural, organic based, all in one solution. Contact your soil health specialist, Tom Fantazzi, at 209 312 4016. Cinegro, your partner for a cleaner, greener world. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. It's now easier to apply for a National Scholars Program. That's coming up on This Land of Hours. The Department of Agriculture this week unveiled a new e-application for the USDA 1890 National Scholars Program. The program aims to encourage students at 1890s institutions to pursue food and agricultural career paths. For the first time, the new e-application for the USDA 1890 National Scholars Program allows young people around the country to complete and submit their applications online. USDA partners with these 1890 universities to provide scholarship recipients with full tuition, fees, books, room, and board. Scholarship recipients attend one of the 1890 land-grant universities and pursue degrees in agriculture, food, natural resource sciences, or related academic disciplines. The scholarship also includes work experience at USDA. The application deadline is Wednesday, March 15th. We have more information on our website, agnetwest.com. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. This is the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. In 2022, the U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments in a case challenging a California law that makes the sale of pork in California contingent on compliance with conditions that virtually no existing commercial farms meet. The case is a big deal for hog farmers and agriculture in general. To sell pork in California, the pig from which the pork derives must have been born to a sow housed in space requirements that few farms satisfy. California raises hardly any pigs, but accounts for about 13% of U.S. pork consumption. That means the costs of complying with the law fall almost exclusively on out-of-state farmers. Because a single pig is processed into cuts that are sold nationwide in response to demand, those costs will be passed on to consumers everywhere in transactions that have nothing to do with California. The Federal Appeals Court recognized that the law had dramatic upstream effects and will require pervasive changes to the pork production industry nationwide. But the appellate court upheld the law anyway. Now it's up to the Supreme Court to determine whether one state can impose such costly burdens on another state. The case is a very important one for agriculture and the economy in general. 
If one state can prescribe production methods for products it doesn't produce, where's the endpoint to such conduct? This has been the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. Chemists are working on healthier margarine. Artificial trans fats were once a popular choice for making margarine, spreads, and shortenings. However, after concerns over their correlation with the risk of heart disease, certain partially hydrogenated oils were phased out by the FDA. Now, research chemists with the United States Department of Agriculture, Agriculture Research Service, are working on the development of healthier butter-like spread options for consumers. Saturated fats are often used as solidifying agents and taste enhancers with butter-like spreads such as margarine. Chemists are experimenting the replacement of those saturated fats with plant-based and other natural waxes such as sunflower, rice bran, candania, and beeswax. They're doing this by melting the waxes in hot vegetable oil and letting the cool mix to room temperature. This results in a semi-solid substance called an oleogel. When mixed with water, salt, and other ingredients, the oleogel mimics the role of saturated fats in producing a margarine spread or shortening that has the desired firmness, mouthfeel, melting point, shelf life, and other properties, including when used in baked goods. Hang Sik Wang, one of the researchers conducting the study, says wax-based oligels, quote, may be able to replace 100% of the saturated fats, including saturated fat in palm oil and fully hydrogenated vegetable oils. Visit ars.usda.gov for more on this study. Reporting for Agnet West Radio Network, I'm Danielle Leal. By breeders, for breeders. Holstein Association USA's Marketplace Sires program pairs registered dairy breeders with those seeking more versatility in their AI selection. The person the association tapped to lead the program is a natural. Tim Zimba has spent his entire life in dairy genetics. Holstein and genetics have been in my blood since I was a child. Uh, I've been part of this association um, for my entire life. So the opportunity to, to work with dairy genetics and then work with an association that has been such an important part of my life uh, was, was a, a no-brainer for me. Zimba knows he has an important job with Holstein Marketplace sires. Some dairy producers have genetic needs that are quite specific, and this program is uniquely suited to address them. My goals for the future of Holstein Marketplace is obviously to grow the program, to uh, make it a more mainstream uh, option for breeders to bring bulls into the program and breeders to purchase semen and genetics through the program. I would like to not just stick to one set of ideology, be well-rounded, have bulls that may fit some niche markets. Jay Jokey and his wife own Synergy Family Dairy in Wisconsin. The couple have a bull in the Holstein Marketplace Sires program that fills many needs. What I'm trying to accomplish is produce a high-type high udder composite bull that still has a fair amount of milk and has the, the workability, the positive DPR and the positive productive life. And so this bull kind of fits all that. He doesn't really make him too big, but yet he's going to make really good high type uh, offspring that do the things that we want him to do. Uh, lay down, have a calf, do things easy. Not only does Holstein Marketplace Sires introduce a new line of genetics into herds, it does so while bringing royalties back to the breeders, small and large. Rick Adams owns Sugar Creek Dairy, also in Wisconsin, and has a bull in the program. I think it's a place for the breeders that, you know, have um, kept at it and, and kept to their um, beliefs and their principles. 
and they're going to make some quality pedigrees and quality animals that need to be used more so than just in their own herd that can be expanded and delivered nationwide. That's outstanding to have that chance. So I'm glad the program's here. Visit HolsteinUSA.com and click on Holstein Marketplace to view the current offering of U.S. registered Holstein genetics and to learn more about how to get involved with the program. For Holstein Association USA, I'm Miles Ramsey. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at fels.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West, providing you with statewide agriculture news daily. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. Now let's listen in to more featured segments. Well, the NCBA convention in less than two weeks will have an additional agenda item for producers to consider and learn more about following NCBA's suit filed this week against the EPA over the waters of the U.S. rule. NCBA's legal counsel says the administration's new definition is an attack on farmers and ranchers and removes long-standing exclusions for small and isolated water often found on farms and ranches. Bottom line analysts add that it is interesting the EPA would dive headlong into such a controversy with a similar suit currently before the Supreme Court in Sackett versus EPA. April live cattle dipped below 159 yesterday and may not find solid support for another dollar. We'd look for support near 157.75 to the 158 level. The first ever Crop Nutrition Week coming up. Brought to you by AgriLiquid. It's a virtual week of learning, February 6th through the 10th. You can learn more and register for all the information free at CropNutritionWeek.com. That's CropNutritionWeek.com. This is the Bottom Line Report. We look for a higher grain trade at the close here on the day ahead of the weekend. And that's our Bottom Line. I'm Mark Oppold, wishing you a profitable day and a profitable week ahead. One of Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack's first public appearances of 2023 was before the American Farm Bureau Federation's annual convention earlier this month. The secretary used the event to reveal a series of announcements related to various programs and investments. Of expanding meat and poultry processing, a new pandemic assistance revenue program, as well as the latest phase of the emergency relief program and public comment on an aspect of the fertilizer production expansion program. Programs with the combined effort, according to the secretary, to try to focus American agriculture on productivity, profitability, sustainability, and resilience. I'm Rod Bain. And coming up, a look at how recent USDA announcements attempt to accomplish those goals in this edition of Agriculture USA. The annual American Farm Bureau Federation Convention usually features a visit or speech by the Secretary of Agriculture. This year's event in Puerto Rico was no exception. 
One of the focal points of Secretary Tom Vilsack's speech, announcements regarding existing and new programs, part of USDA's efforts to create new and more valuable commodities to increase new and better markets for our farmers. We've looked for ways in which we can encourage and increase the number of revenue streams available to farmers. We looked for ways in which we could lower costs of inputs, and we looked for ways in which we could continue to keep farmers, ranchers, and producers on the land. It was last year that applications were accepted for funding within the new Fertilizer Production Expansion Program, a program created to increase domestic input production and reduce reliance of foreign fertilizer ingredients and finished product. While grant announcements are expected to start later this spring, the Secretary revealed an environmental impact public comment period now underway through February 8th provides a glimpse of what some of these projects might look like. We're basically posting and providing a list of 21 potential viable projects that we've identified that would potentially have an opportunity to impact the availability and potentially the cost of important inputs and in fertilizer during the 2023-2024 crop year. Also announced, the latest round of funding awards through the Meat and Poultry Processing Expansion Program, $12 million in grants to fund efforts with three specific projects. We're going to fund and help the International Food System of Ohio develop a new poultry processing facility in Ohio to expand significantly their capacity to produce new product. We're going to provide additional resources to the Michigan Turkey Producers Group in order for them to be able to increase the capacity of their existing facility by 370,000 birds annually and allow them over time potentially to double their capacity to nearly 10 million birds being processed. And we're going to provide resources to Benson and Turner, which is a new hog and beef processing facility in Minnesota associated with the Wright Earth Indian Reservation to provide new opportunities as well. Secretary Vilsack also said at his Farm Bureau presentation that applications will soon be made available for two new programs designed to fill gaps in both natural disaster and pandemic assistance. Producers who didn't qualify for assistance under those programs, they were left out of the initial phase one emergency provisions. We're announcing a program that's targeted towards those producers. So we're providing flexibility in this second phase. For those who received a decrease of income and revenue in 2020 and 2021, we're giving them an option of choosing either 2018 or 2019 as the year to benchmark the extent of loss. We're also, as a companion, announcing a new pandemic assistance revenue program for producers who experienced a 15% or greater decrease in gross revenue in 2020 compared to 2018 or 2019. Adjustments, meanwhile, are being made to the non-insured Crop Disaster Assistance Program, NAP. Adjustments designed to improve risk protection for underserved producers. We're creating an opportunity with an update that's going to allow folks who have filed the CCC 860 form, which is the form that designates you as a beginning veteran, limited resource, or socially disadvantaged farmer, as being eligible for NAP beginning in 2022. That's going to provide some basic coverage to those farmers. And we're also announcing for farmers who have been struggling as underserved producers an additional increase in the CFAP program. CFAP, as in the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Danielle Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. 
Today's show is sponsored by the makers of All Grow Compost, a natural, organic-based, all-in-one solution. Contact your soil health specialist, Tom Fantazzi, at 209-312-4016. Cinegro, your partner for a cleaner, greener world. Welcome back. Here's Brian German with more Ag News. President of the California chapter of the American Society of Agronomy, Michelle Leinfelder-Miles, joins us this morning to talk about the upcoming California Plant and Soil Conference, which is back as an in-person event this year, which is nice. And so, Michelle, let's just start out here with uh, what this conference focuses on and uh, who might benefit from attending. Yeah, this is the annual conference of our chapter. We welcome folks from the agricultural industry, including consultants and growers, to come to this conference and to learn. This is a great opportunity to learn about some of the latest research that's happening in the crops that are important here in California. So the conference brings together researchers and extension agents and people from industry to talk about specialty crops like trees and vines, vegetables, and also field and forage crops. So there's a good mix of topics Uh, a good mix of uh, commodities that are covered. And uh, it's a great opportunity for networking in the ag industry. And uh, as I noted, uh, it is back in person this year. So uh, where's it going to be and and, um, when's it going to be as well? Yeah, we're back in person after two years of being virtual due to the COVID pandemic. So we're really glad to be back at the Fresno Doubletree Hotel in downtown Fresno. The conference is always held in early February, and this coming conference will be February 7th and 8th. Um, It runs for about a day and a half, and uh, it includes a main session and then eight breakout sessions that happen over the course of that day and a half. So it's packed with a lot of information. Some of the topics that will be covered or the sessions that will be covered um, address the theme that we're talking about this year, which is Faces of Conservation, Partners and Stewardship. With that theme, uh, our main session will have two panels of speakers, a group of panelists that represent different organizations and agencies. They'll be talking about how they partner with growers to achieve conservation outcomes. And then we'll have a panel of growers who come and talk to the group about the practices they're implementing on their farms, the lessons they've learned, the things that have worked or maybe haven't worked, the benefits and maybe even the challenges that they've experienced as they've implemented conservation practices. So we're really excited to have this as our theme and to have a group, uh, a wide group of folks coming and speaking in that main session. To follow up that main session, we'll have breakout sessions that address integrated pest management and biodiversity, uh, soil management for climate smart agriculture, nutrient management, cover cropping, a good breadth of disciplines that are being covered. So quite a bit of information um, will be provided and kind of gone over for for two days there. And uh, it is an opportunity to network with uh, some other people in the ag industry, but also that education component is is pretty critical for a lot of people. So um, what kind of continuing education um, might we be looking at here? Um, I I know it might be a little early out, but um, what what have you guys applied for? What might people be able to uh, accumulate there from, from this year's conference? 
Yeah, our continuing education applications are still pending, but we have applied for Department of Pesticide Regulation credits for uh, pesticide applicators. Uh, The amount of uh, DPR credits is usually a smaller portion for this conference, just because the amount of pest management that's being spoken about is a little bit less on the program. But for certified crop advisors, basically the whole conference will have credits awarded to it in the categories of nutrient management or crop management or pest management and soil and water management. So a lot of different credits can be earned for certified crop advisors. And on the point of education, I also want to mention that this conference is a great opportunity for students who are um, studying agricultural sciences. We uh, make it a focus to bring students in and to support their registration and to support uh, different programs for the students. So that includes an undergraduate scholarship competition and also undergraduate and graduate level poster competitions where they can develop a poster on their research, come in and present it to a group of judges who then can rank those posters and uh, help the students to learn a little bit more about what it's like to present a scientific poster. And we just love the opportunity to bring young people into this conference and hopefully help to develop them into uh, future agronomists or um, a future scientists in agriculture. So a lot of education there available for um, kind of a, a variety of disciplines, it, it sounds like. And um, just uh, lastly here, uh, where can people go to uh, get some more information or uh, maybe to register now? Uh, where, where might people find that information at? Yeah, all of the information can be found online. Our website is CalASA. Dot ucdavis.edu. Registration is now open. And uh, if folks are traveling from outside of the area, then they can also look to the website for the hotel information um, in the conference hotel block. And so uh, I really welcome folks to check it out online. The agenda is there and posted. So there's more information about not only the different sessions, but also the specific uh, presenters. And then finally, there's opportunities for sponsorship. I just want to point this out, that the sponsorship uh, helps to support the student programs. So if uh, somebody works for a company who'd be interested in uh, sponsoring this conference, if the topics that are being discussed align with that company's mission, we would love to have their sponsorship. They can go to the website to find out more about that too. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Danielle Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. Support us at 4H.org. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. In this week's California Chill Hour report brought to you by Dormex. Wake up your buds with Dormex. We're joined once again by UC Cooperative Extension Orchard Systems Advisor for Yolo, Solano, and Sacramento Counties, Kat Jarvis-Sheehan, to talk about the ongoing weather events and how that's been impacting chill accumulation. 
And now last week, uh, we sort of touched on how the storm systems have been affecting chill in orchards, but I wanted to focus more on um, how that moisture might be impacting things. Uh, It seems like um, all the water that's been accumulating in orchards over the last um, two months, really, that's that's left a lot of moisture out there, which uh, should presumably be impacting the amount of fog out there, right? I would expect so, too. You know, yeah, I would say that um, just anecdotal experience from up here around where I am, even the early storms that we got, we seem to go into the winter with a fair amount of moisture around um, and in the soil. So it, it has seemed like a foggier winter to me than than what we've gotten in recent years. It feels more like the the foggy winters of my of my childhood in Yolo County. And I know that uh, fog has been a little bit on the decline compared to uh, what it used to be. But uh, with some more fog, that could um, have a pretty positive impact on chill accumulation in trees, right? Yeah. So um, fog impacts winter chill accumulation by sort of shrouding the trees so that they're not intercepting as much solar radiation, which can heat them up. So, you know, when they're out lying in the sunshine, they get a lot warmer than the ambient air temperature. Um, whereas if they're not exposed to the sunshine like that, because they're in you know foggy conditions, they don't get heated up as much. And information from the UC Davis Chill Calculator shows that as of January 18th, the Durham-Simmons station has logged 53.5 portions under the dynamic model with 884 hours below 45 degrees. The station in Manteca has registered 50.8 portions with 798 hours. There have been 923 hours in Merced with 51.7 cumulative portions. In five points, there's been 861 chill hours, equating to 48.5 portions. Finally, the Simmons station in Shafter has registered 47.5 portions with 851 hours. And this has been the California Chill Hour Report brought to you by Dormex. Tune in next week for another episode. USDA's National Organic Program on Wednesday published the Strengthening Organic Enforcement Final Rule. The update to USDA's organic regulation strengthens oversight and enforcement of the production, handling, and sale of organic products. The final rule implements the 2018 Farm Bill mandates, responds to an industry request for updates to the USDA organic regulations, and addresses the National Organic Standards Board recommendations. USDA Undersecretary for Marketing and Regulatory Programs Jenny Lester Moffitt says, quote, protecting and growing the organic sector and the trusted USDA organic seal is a key part of the USDA Food Systems Transformation Initiative. The strengthening organic enforcement rule is the biggest update to the organic regulations since the original act in 1990 providing a significant increase in oversight and enforcement authority to reinforce the trust of consumers, farmers, and those transitioning to organic production. That's according to USDA. Organic stakeholders affected by the rule will have one year from the effective date of the rule to comply with the changes. Lester Moffitt goes on to list a few of the things that the new organic rules will do. This rule does a few different things. Primarily, it safeguards the organic industry, um, the integrity of organic products, so both consumers as well as producers are operating in a fair and level playing field. It reduces fraud in the organic market and improves compliance for organic imports. 
Um, importantly, uh, this rule incorporates the mandates from the 2018 Farm Bill, as well as other industry requested updates to the organic regulations, as well as recommendations from the National Organic Standards Board. So very comprehensive in this in the nature of this rule. Um, it ensures critical oversight of portions of the organic supply chain to maintain consumers' trust in the organic label. In a few weeks, UC Cooperative Extension will be hosting the 2023 Carrot Research Symposium as an online event. The symposium will be held as a Zoom webinar on Tuesday, February 14th, beginning at 9 a.m. Vegetable Crops Advisor Jaspreet Sidhu will begin the event with updates on Kern County carrot projects. Other topics of discussion will include screening carrot lines for resistance to cavity spot and other traits, evaluation of fungicide performance delivered by solid-set overhead sprinkler irrigation systems, and root-knot nematode injury prevention. After the break, presentations will be covering steam disinfestation of weed seed banks and carrots, best irrigation and nitrogen management practices in low desert carrot production systems, and finally an update on SCRI-funded bacterial blight research. More information on the symposium is available on the upcoming events page at agnetwest.com. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Daniel Leal, Brian German, and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.